Well, good morning, LCM. Today is July 16th, 2023, and we want to jump right into Scripture. Turn to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 35. Luke 12 and verse 35. It says, Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once. Somebody say, at once. When he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Well, that's a good thing. You're not sure exactly when the master's coming back, but he is looking for and he is saying, blessed are the ones, blessed are the servants who he can find awake, alert, attentive with their dressed for action in everything with their lamps burning for the very presence of God. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline to the table and he will come and serve them. See, our God is with us today. He is calling us, and we are a people who want to stay dressed and ready for action with our lamps burning. And we just got to tell you, part of that lamp burning is what God is doing inside of us with this word that we have for you today. It is such a blessing to be in the house of God with the family of God, and particularly people who have entered in with robes of righteousness and the flame of God burning inside of their heart. Are you awake this morning? Yes, you are. This morning, we're going to awaken to the reality of our current state of heart and gain a sobriety of what is at war within the center of our beings. We are a church that is constantly seeking to stay dressed for action, keeping our lamps burning, advancing the kingdom, growing in greater unity as a body that is building itself up in love. Like the church in Ephesus, we're waging war against what is in obvious opposition to God. But we cannot become lax in our awareness of the subtleties that cause the slow fade of our faith or the gradual dimming of our flame. See, we not only face the obvious opposition of external forces, but we must also recognize and confront the greater foe of our own covert and internal enemies. These enemies are set on seducing, isolating, and disorienting your heart. These kinds of enemies seek to kill your confidence, steal your robe of righteous deeds, and destroy the plural unity we've worked so hard to build between God and one another. This morning, we're going to ask our Heavenly Father to awaken our souls, to weigh and measure our hearts and apply the healing salve of truth found in His Word. We will invite the Spirit of God to breathe upon us, to give us the strength to conquer what we cannot on our own in this season of war that we are presently in. Stand to your feet today. We're going to pray again together. Heavenly Father, we offer up to you our mind our will, our emotions, Lord, the center of our beings. And we say, open our eyes to see the character of who you are and the character of ourselves as well. Lord, may your spirit breathe upon your word this morning. May it give us the strength, Lord, to rise into your righteousness and stand holy in your sight. We ask that you breathe upon your word and let it stir and awaken our souls. Let it fan into flame the faith that you have imparted into us. And Lord, may we glorify your name with our mouths and with our deeds. In the name of Jesus, amen. Church is a body. We're going through a period of spiritual warfare that exposes the weaknesses of every man and the apostasy of some. Therefore, we will begin by drawing weapons of righteousness from the armory of King David's writings in Psalm 101. In this psalm, he lays out eight practical verses that should be viewed as a charter or an internal oath. One that David gleaned from the very word of God. We say charter or internal oath. And what should come to your mind when you think of this psalm as being a codification, the very documentation or the publication of the founding principles that David will operate his entire kingdom upon. David saw these essential truths in the word of God. 
committed to them internally first. And then he relied on these eight verses to inform every action of his kingship and his rule. Most of you will have a pericope for this psalm, giving it the title, I will walk with integrity, which should be viewed as the anthem of or in the prototype of the messianic kingdom. The words, I will. Everyone say, I will. I will. The words, I will, are the bedrock of this psalm and codify David's oath and commitment to the reality that Messiah would accomplish. You're going to want to make sure that you are in Psalm 101 in your own actual physical Bible right there in your lap because we are going to work our way through this entire psalm. Psalm 101 in verse 1. It says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. See, the first commitment that David made and that formed the basis for his entire kingly rule was that is this exact phrase. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to the Lord. See, those, those two elements, a steadfast love and justice, are pillars that are at work for the forming the basis of David's entire rule. Yeah. Now, these are not set as only ends of a spectrum, but you can see that a steadfast love gives you a reason, knowing that God is for you, knowing that he's going to work in you, and his justice that knows that you must get things right because both parts of this are at play. Now, the interesting part is clearly David is meditating on this, but do you realize that the first verse doesn't just say, I will meditate. It's actually saying what? What's, what's the verbs here? I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing. I'm going to make music. It's got to be that what I am meditating on is so alive in me that it comes out of my mouth. Ever been guilty about saying that you're meditating on something, but you're not even sure how long you actually meditated on it because you were so distracted? I've often talked that way, much like you. But the truth is, is when you begin to speak, it's almost like Romans 10, 17 that says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As you are speaking out the word, as you are exalting the Lord through steadfast love and his justice, there's something that is happening on the inside of you. See, David's kingship was a reflection of God's rule. So he started by magnifying God's character. Now, does everybody agree with what we just said? Yes. That's great. But let me tell you a, a part of this that you need to get down in your spirit. See, David starts with this as the first and foundational principle because he was aware of something vital that sometimes we miss. Namely, if you don't start here, let's talk about that for a second. When you don't start with exalting the steadfast love and justice of our God, when you start anywhere else, the inevitable conclusion for that perverted path that you then put yourself on, it's going to lead you to a state of oppression. It's going to lead you into a land of confusion. And it's going to cause you to drift from the direction that God first set for you. First, it starts a drift and a numbing in your own heart. And then it begins to produce something in every action that you do after that. Wow. No wonder David's charter first starts with saying, I will sing of God's steadfast love and his justice. Hallelujah. Church, Paul gave the same type of command. You stay right there in Psalm 101. I will read it for you in Philippians 4 and verse 8, and we'll even put it on the screen. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, these are verses that we love, but when you start reading that, like I just did, in engaging with this, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, can I tell you that those are not the things that I always spend my time thinking about? See, but the Lord knows exactly how to direct our hearts, to refine our hearts, to purify our hearts. And this is step one, and David gives it to us. See, here in Philippians, Paul shared this command because he personally endured numerous battles and saw the apostasy of many of his own friends. He saw people that started out well and did not remain in the faith. They started out with passion and a fire and a lamp that was burning, but something happened and that fire dimmed, their heart numbed, and they strayed from what God had for them. 
See, our charter is to sing of the steadfast love and justice of God rather than whine about faithlessness, whine about wickedness, or the decaying state of men around us. Somebody say that's, that is the charter number one. Let's go to verse 2 to find charter number 2. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. So look, after exalting the character of God's rule with praise, David then directs the attention of his soul to the way that is blameless. Meaning an actionable path that leads you to being complete and righteous in God's sight. Our very own pondering of thoughts, feelings, and actions are to take this same path instead of deviating into the diversity of anything that is an alternative. The very alternatives that call out and beckon to us every minute of every hour of every day to do anything other than what is blameless in God's sight. The second item of the charter of King David centered around how he walked within his own home. He knew that the defense of the kingdom of God on earth would be dependent upon his own integrity in the place where he was most comfortable. The place where most people let down their guard. He was committed to the highest levels of integrity where people knew him the best and were able to know him the most intimately. Think about this, saints. The largest failures of David's life came from the times when he, he became lax and was unguarded in his own home. Instead of yielding to the defeats of the past or succumbing to the alternative ponderings of the present, like David... We must persistently walk in integrity within the privacy of our own home, first and foremost. Church, we want to see you in, encapsulate something incredible here. Having dealt with all alternatives and only meditating on the way that is blameless, now walking in integrity within your own home, it is to produce an environment of longing for the presence of the Lord. When was the last time that you or your wife or children, your whole household cried out, Oh, when will you come to me, Lord? That desperation, that hunger, that thirst to be in the center of God's presence. Because David founded his own home and the entirety of his kingdom on a genuine longing for the presence of God. And we must be determined to make our homes a place for those who desire him, who long for him, who crave his presence, just as we do. Come on now, doesn't that get you right, right in the feels today? That your home might be marked by longing for God's presence. See, this is what David is after in his charter here. Let's look at verse 3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. By the way, does it say evil right there or does it say worthless? I will not set before my eyes even anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Church, the third of David's charter statements proclaims that he will hate all wickedness, all wicked things, and even the pathway that could lead you towards wickedness. We are surrounded by a perverse cesspool of carnal wickedness, and we do not have a choice whether that's going to be in the world around us because it's there. What we do have is the choice of what not to allow into our own minds and into our own hearts. You have the choice of what you actually allow in, and we're saying that it has to be. You have the choice to deny anything entering into your field of view that is worthless, that is empty, that is good for nothing. More importantly, the worthless thoughts that we have about ourselves are these thoughts that we feel are just innocent and feel justified. Those are the ones that we have to measure and guard as it's trying to enter into our very souls. 
You've got to awaken your soul this morning and see that these thoughts are ultimately aimed at leading us away from the accomplishments of the first two charters that David gives. Once you focused on the Lord, once you have righteousness inside of your home, this is what is trying to steal it away. It's not only evil things, but worthless things that begin to taint your own heart and your own walk with the Lord. See, David's boldness within himself was magnified throughout his entire kingdom. I mean, listen to the boldness of these words. These things are going to be far from me. I hate the works of the wicked. I will not know anything of evil. This boldness expanded and magnified throughout the kingdom to hate the actions of all who fall away. Those works didn't cling to David. They didn't cling on to him because he never dwelt with them or dwelt on those thoughts and those actions. Instead of having sinful sympathies towards wicked men and their actions, he chose to side with the messianic kingdom and everything that that king stands for. See, David's stated goal was to know nothing of evil. He achieved this by not allowing his heart to dwell on perverse, wicked, worthless things, whether they were the actions of others or his own internal thoughts that were opposing God. Man, what a powerful charter that David is laying before us here in Psalm 101. Let's see how it continues in verse 5. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. This is the fourth charter statement of David's rule. David was fully committed to destroying evil speech and arrogant intentions. Therefore, you must be intolerant of the things that harm your brothers. You must be intolerant of the things that harm the family of God on your left and right and all that surround you. You do this by destroying every thought, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God so that out of your very mouths can flow the abundance of a heart that edifies one another, that protects the sanctity of brotherhood. And it goes on to cultivate humility that demonstrates itself by outdoing one another in honor. Church, when we're reading through this psalm, you should hear the escalation through these first four charter statements. David first began by meditating and celebrating through praise the steadfast love and the very justice of God. He then focused on a blameless way that was full of integrity and cultivated a longing for God's presence in the sanctity of his own home. David quickly moved to hating all wickedness, whether in himself or others, and here in the fourth charter, he is seeking to intolerantly destroy the very things that break down the brotherhood. His clear statement is that he will have nothing to do with what wants to destroy the unity of the men that are surrounding him. And so therefore, we glean from that, we will also do whatever it takes to destroy what seeks to disunify this body. Look at verse 6. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. See, because these charter statements of David were derived directly from the word, his eyes are now seeking the throughout the entirety of the land for those who have dedicated themselves to cultivating faithfulness just as he has. This is the fifth charter statement of David's kingship, and it's clear that he has put all of his affection, all of his favor, all of, uh, on the, those who desire and are demonstrating faithfulness in his own domain. He directed all of his desire to share his life and service with those who are just like him, pursuing righteousness along with those who have a pure heart and are calling on God. See, David is exemplifying his own words that he spoke in Psalm 16, verse 3, when he said, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Church, you and I must give all. Somebody say all. We must give all our attention to those who desire to become faithful. 
In addition to building an entire kingdom of faithfulness, this focused attention protects us in the process. And furthermore, it helps to advance what we've actually dedicated our own lives to. Let's look at verse 7. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. This is the sixth oath and charter principle of the Davidic kingdom. And here we see how David is overtly committed to crushing all forms of deceit within his own house. Wouldn't that take a watchful eye? Wouldn't that take a constant connection with the heart and mind of God? To pick up on just the slightest hint of what is seeking through a subtle and subversive means to destroy shalom that's in the home. He is dedicated to removing from his presence anything and anyone who is known to practice things that are contrary to the truth. Not contrary to his feelings, not contrary to his preferences, but contrary to the very truth of God. These practices of David, they safeguarded him as a man. They protected him as a leader, and they sustained his rulership as a king. They will do the exact same for us as we enact these principles first in our homes. Everybody say, first in my home. First in my home. And then every place that we find ourselves standing to advance the kingdom of God. Let's take a look at verse 8. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Church, this is the culmination, the capstone of the Davidic Charter. This seventh statement gives the key to the implementation of the entire psalm. Namely, that these are all designed to flourish through daily implementation. Through every day, morning by morning. Your faithfulness to act and act each one of these that we've listed today, morning by morning, will not only renew the charter each day, but it renews you in the process. See, it protects your heart from impure thoughts that your own labor is in vain. And it daily awakens you to a renewed passion and a renewed zeal for all of God's people and God's purposes. A zeal for God's house that consumes you and a possessing a flame that does not grow weary and lose heart in our struggle to build our lives unto the cornerstone of the messianic kingdom. See, David's success to enact this charter brought about the best representation of the kingdom on earth that the world had seen up into this point. And the same is going to be true in you. As you implement these, you can see the very principles of the kingdom beginning to be built in your own life. The reality of this, of this, of this pursuit that we should have in a daily way is equally as sobering as it is encouraging if we become lax lazy, or fall asleep to these behaviors that we've immediately started the process. When you're not pursuing this, there is an immediate regression that begins, whether it's aware, you're aware of it, your own thoughts are aware of it, or even if anybody else is aware, there's an immediate regression when you're not applying these principles daily in your own life. Come on, everybody say daily. daily. You know, daily, God gives us the opportunity to experience something in a physical reality, there's also a spiritual reality. It is that moment that the alarm goes off in the morning. Oh, that beloved alarm. It did. I think for every person in the room, it happened this morning. That's why you're here in church. When the alarm goes off, you begin to awake. And depending on Maybe how that process looks for you. Or growl if you're me. Right? It's uh, either with a cup of coffee or something else. Isn't the whole goal, is it at, from the moment you wake up, the zeal for God's house begins to consume you? That the fire of God begins to burn brighter. And from that point forward until the, day, the moment you lay your head back to go to sleep, that God's work is done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what we're seeing here in David's charters from Psalm 101 is to give us a clear understanding of what we want to expound upon from this point forward. We want to share with you about a key figure in the Davidic kingdom that was appointed by the king and guided by David's charter 
to help build Messiah's kingdom on earth. This key figure that we want to share with you, his name is Asaph. Y'all ready to learn something about Asaph? You know what? To kick it all off, because I, I need pictures a lot of time to help me with things. We have a slide for you this morning. Seven facets of Asaph's life. So, as we're looking at this, number one, Asaph was a Levite who worked in a three-fold team. It was himself, Heman, and Jeduthun, stated in 1 Chronicles 15. Secondly, Asaph was a chief minister, not just an average minister, a chief minister who tended to the presence of God before the Ark of the Testimony in 1 Chronicles 16. Asaph's sons and the sons of his team members followed in his footsteps. Man, that's an advancement of generational ministry in 1 Chronicles 25. In fact, Asaph's work was prophetic, and future peoples recognized this fact, as stated in 2 Chronicles 29. Yeah, that's when Hezekiah, King Hezekiah calls him Asaph the seer. In generations beyond that, this man was so prolific that his prophetic prowess was known. Goes on to say that Asaph witnessed the transition. Get this, this is a great one. He witnessed the transition from the tabernacle at Gibeon, then to David's tent, and even into Solomon's temple. Wow, that's a career. That is a career of witnessing exponential growth and expansion of God's kingdom being displayed on earth. Number six, Asaph wrote 12 psalms that would serve the people of God in his generation, but also the generations to come. Twelve. Number seven, Asaph faced his own perplexing frailty and yet devoted his life to strengthening others. That is clearly stated in Psalm 73, and that's where we're going to begin to move this morning. Church, this is an impressive figure in the Bible. You should realize that what we're saying to you here has very few parallels with anyone else that you can read about. A man in a threefold team ministering before the Lord through different seasons and, and uh, trajectories within the nation of Israel. Having his sons and the sons of his team do things through the generations that are attested to throughout the word. This is an incredible man of God. Asaph was a man chosen by God to serve God's people in one of the greatest eras of Israel's history. He was a man who was instrumental in carrying out priestly duties. He was gifted and anointed for the task and faithful to his covenant with his God and with the king and the brotherhood. He was a highly decorated man of God that is still bearing righteous fruit, which we get to take part of today, thousands of years after the fact. The truth is, with all that being said, he was a man whose heart required God's word to purify and to strengthen the hold that he had on the Davidic charter that we just read to you in Psalm 101. By the way, we want to tell you that the title of today's message is The Heart of Asaph. The Heart of Asaph. And we want to begin with you as you turn to Psalm 73. And we're going to get an incredible glimpse into this man of God's heart. Say the heart of Asaph as you turn. Say one more time, but with jubilance and praise. Heart of Asaph. Man, I love our church. Psalm 73 and verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. At the opening of Psalm 73, Asaph brings us to the main point of all that he is going to expound upon afterwards. He states this before giving the details of how his own heart had to be purified. It is as if he had witnessed something, that he's read about a few things. Maybe very familiar with the faithfulness of God to purify the hearts of his people in the book of Exodus. Or how about to discipline the sons that he loves? like King David, 
or establish a kingdom on earth through Solomon that reflects the very one in heaven. He had some experience here. But don't forget, remember, Asaph was a priest. And as a priest, Asaph is bearing the responsibility to teach God's truths to even the most simple in our midst as we're engaging this text. He states the conclusion of his own testimony. He's telling you the end of the matter at the beginning of the statement before he ever goes on to elaborate on his testimony. He was doing this in order to make sure that no one misses the main point. So verse 1 initiates the first of six total statements encompassing Asa's heart. And it addresses the first line of defense for your heart. That being the watchfulness over his own heart. You know what? There must be greater vigilance to watch over our own heart than just to pay attention to the waves of external opposition. Because you know what we do. When we detect obvious attacks of external enemies, we sound the alarm. We muster the troops. We get to going to war. And we just plain win, man. However, the condition of our own heart, that is where the greatest susceptibility lies. It is the most vulnerable area of defeat and is the greater risk among all others. Come on, somebody say that's true. The external opposition is not where we are most likely to fail. You can see that coming. You can rally the brothers. You can stand firm and you can start delivering blows right and left hand to make sure that the enemy falls. It's the internal, what feels like they're subtle slidings of our own heart where the issue really is. Consider Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17 in verse 9. This is a familiar passage, but we want you to get this and understand this today. The heart... Somebody say, my heart, my heart is deceitful above all things. And the verse goes on to say, and it's desperately sick. Now, when, you, when I think about this verse, let's not talk about you for a second. When I think about this verse, yes, the heart is deceitful above all things. And I forget to say how desperately sick it is. Who can understand it? See, while most in this room, the truth is, is we can quote this verse, the real problem is, is that there's a deceptiveness of our own hearts that it causes us to be completely oblivious to subtle events that numb us to our own condition. They dim the fire that God wants, that once was kindled for him. Our desperately sick hearts lull us to sleep. Our desperately sick hearts begin to lull us to sleep, rocking us like a child with a lullaby, with promises that Man, I'm fine. I'm doing okay today. I mean, the things that I'm doing are pretty good, so I must be all right between me and the Lord. Instead, what we're calling you to today is to renew your commitment to that Davidic charter that we just spoke to you about and continue in, in, in a daily, morning-by-morning morning kind of way. See, here in Psalm 73, Asaph has given us the end of the matter in advance. Somebody say, thank you, Asaph. I love it when they just tell me what the point is in case I miss it along the way. He just gives it to us. So we're going to do the same thing for you. Amen. We're going to do that right now for you. This psalm is going to demonstrate from Asaph's own life, from a transparency that is amazing from this man who documents this for us. We're going to find the actual state of his heart. And in this psalm, it could be summarized in any of the following three ways. It could be summarized as the testimony of a heart that was seduced and then that same heart that had to be healed. It could be summarized as a testimony of a heart that became isolated and then that same heart that was restored back to communion. It could be the testimony of a heart that was disoriented and that same heart that was again properly oriented by God through this process. See, all of these are true about Asaph in this psalm. And if the psalm of Asaph, by the way, you remember those 
We just listed seven of some of the most incredible things that can be said about any man, and especially even throughout the Word of God, the specific nature of how prolific Asaph was, and this is the journey of his heart today. What, was that, what would that mean about us then as well? We're going to definitely learn exactly what God has for us today. As you begin to ponder this very thought, let's look at the five remaining heart statements that Asaph gives us by going on to verse 2 of Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. That is gross. Their hearts overflow with follies. Their hearts overflow with follies. So in verse 1, Asaph testifies to the goodness of God given to those who have a pure heart. And then here in verse 2, he begins to show exactly how impure his own heart is. Look, this is bearing witness to the immediate transparency that the heart of Asaph has. He states, God is good to Israel, to those who have a pure heart. But as for me, a sober judgment, a reckoning of exactly where he's at. You can see how Asaph has let David's charter begin to slip in this moment. He is meditating on the actions of the wicked, their experiences, rather than setting his heart solely focused on the steadfast love and justice of his God. What's happening in this moment, by turning his eyes away from the steadfast love and justice of God on the actions of the wicked, he is becoming part of the problem that he's contemplating in his own heart and mind. While he is thinking about the follies of the lost and the backslidden, his own heart is being filled with follies that begin the first stage of descent in the heart. You know, when you have envy of the wicked, it is really our heart expressing something pretty vile. And this is ex it's exactly what you're saying. Is that through the folly that is filling your own heart, you are declaring God you are not dis displaying your steadfast love to me. Look at what they have. Look at what they get to get away with. I mean, every step that I take, there is discipline and correction. And I watch them prosper and receive none. You're also saying that the Lord is not going to execute justice when it comes to me. How is this right and fair for me when I see them get away with what should be punished? Let's talk to you about a practical example just to make sure that we're, we're, we're grasping this. If you've ever tried to teach a young child how to ride a bicycle, what happens if they're afraid of the tree that's coming up in, in front of them? I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of this. And those little suckers will run right into a tree. If you've ever had teenagers and you're teaching them how to drive... I'm afraid that I'm going to hit this. I'm afraid of this ditch. And what do those little suckers do? They go right at the ditch. How in the world, out of all the space that you have, how can you go towards it except that that is the very thing that you are meditating upon so it drives the direction of everything that you do? Hey, I cannot believe Hypothetical story here. I can't believe how Pastor Matt treated me. I mean, he was gruff. His, his tone was a little bit more prickly than I would like for it to be. 
So Matt makes one mistake. So you know what I do? I focus on what he's done wrong, and in the process, the folly of which I'm accusing him of, I then multiply in my own heart. I then slander my brother. I don't pray for him. I don't offer forgiveness. I then forget the covenant that I've made with the brother. I then begin to have things in my own heart, this folly that rises up, all while I'm pointing at him, saying what a bad job that he did. The folly that I'm looking at is multiplying in my own heart. Why? Because just like a child looking at a tree and runs into it, I then have gotten my eyes off of the Father. It's on to what someone else has done, especially what they've done that's not been right, and it is now steering my entire life towards destruction. This is what Asaph is giving us here. I have begun to backslide in my own heart because I'm looking at someone else backsliding. When you meditate, come on now, church, think about it. What you worship is what you become. You can go to Psalm 115. You can go to Psalm 135. You can look at those things and realize that the kind of idols that you're worshiping, blind and deaf, is exactly what the people become. What you focus on is what you become. What you worship is what you become. This is Asaph saying, my heart has slipped. I almost stumbled. I almost lost my way because what I began to do was stop focusing on the steadfast love and justice of my God. And I got my heart on folly of other men and it began, began to influence me. Wow. Are y'all with us on this passage? Are you like me and realize that you've been guilty of this more times than you can count? See, this last week, Asaph allowed his heart to be filled with foolish things because he thought too deeply about the practices of the wicked instead of dwelling on the steadfast love and justice of God. I mean, stay right where you are, but Proverbs 23, 17 says, let your heart not envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day long. That's what you're supposed to be focused on. That's why the Davidic charter started with this as the number one statement of the charter. See, Asaph's heart was being pulled down into foolishness. Somebody say foolishness. foolishness. That's foolish to think that way. His heart was being pulled away from the fear of the Lord by dwelling on the foolishness of those around him. Stage one of the descent of Asaph's heart is about having a foolish heart. Let's move forward in, in our text to see, because that's not all. Asaph doesn't stop there. He actually shows you that his heart continues to descend in this process. And we're going to learn something else from it here. Picking up in verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say... How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You can see how Asaph has continued in his slip from the Davidic Charter. He has contemplated the foolish heart of the backslidden until he is having backslidden thoughts of his own. He has not kept himself distant from evil people and the very things that they do. So the evil that he is supposed to hate and keep far from his very own eyes is now seducing him into a subtle evil thought of, uh, and pattern. At first, at first he was probably just thinking, through the problem, right? And why people do what they do. But suddenly, he began to have the thought that perhaps it was futile to keep such close watch on his very own heart. Church, we're a group of people and we pretty much know the right thing to say, right? Do you or not? 
at least we know what the right thing that we're supposed to say on the outside. But what reveals the heart that's laden with futility are the words uttered underneath your breath and the inner speech that casts contempt towards God. See, that kind of thought causes you to dismiss all the times that God has actually washed you. He's cleansed you. He's empowered you. He's helped you when he sanctified you so that his work can be done where he's blessed you with supernatural displays of his power and deliverance over and over again. Ultimately, it is seeing the Davidic charter and this entire way of life that we're a part of as vanity and not worth the sacrifice. See, where stage one was about a foolish heart, in stage two, we've descended into a futile heart. And you know what this does? You know how you can tell if you're in danger of having a futile heart? Because you may not be aware of it yet. But what it does is it steals the passion and the vigor to wake up each day and do the work that the king gave you to do in the first place. This is what has gone on in Asaph's life. And i got to tell you, this is what go- went on this week. Somebody say this week. Not going to have to go back a long time. I can go back to a few days ago, and I'm going to share this with you. Daily trying to engage with right tasks or assigned duties, but with no personal, internal passion and vigor of my own. I'm trying to have, and I had this week, actions without passion for my God. Apparently, that's just me. Remember now that Asaph was a minister before the Lord. His job was to literally, as 1 Chronicles 16 says, his job was to invoke, to thank, and to praise God. How'd you like to have that as a job description? That would be a pretty beautiful, except you do have that as a job description. That is your job, to invoke, to thank God, to praise him with all that you are through your actions. And what happened here is because of a futile heart, the very thing that God calls you to, The very thing that he's gifted you to be able to do and equipped you, you are now only doing from a duty. This was me this week. Can I even do the right tasks if my heart is far from it? That is what I had to wrestle with this week. Did y'all hear the way that I explained this to you? I was doing the right things, but my heart was far from it. Can it be the right thing then? I in my own futile heart, was separating out the purity that's needed in my own heart, the life and the passion that's needed in my own heart from the things that I'm doing. See, I, me, Wade Sutherland, I descended from a foolish heart into a futile heart, and I didn't even recognize that I was in either issue. I was actually truthful. If you want to be really truthful, I was kind of proud of myself because I didn't feel like it and I kept doing things. Wow, that's the definition of a foolish heart. Foolish, but I was kind of proud of myself. Then I had a futile heart because it was robbing my passion. It was robbing my zeal. Come on now. Are y'all with me today? Know how it feels when you ah, got to go to another team meeting. Really? The thing that's building you and making you who you are, that you've lost passion for? Yes. Yes, I can do things and not have passion. That is a sign that my heart has been lulled to sleep, that, I'm, that things are slipping away from me, and it's beyond even my recognition until I'm finding things out of Asaph's life, and it's revealing the truth of my own situation. A foolish heart that leads to a futile heart. Let's take a look at the third stage of descent as we move on to verse 14. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. A wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, 
you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. Asa's delight is no longer focused on the faithful. He is now afflicted in his heart. He has spent too much time focused on the unprofitable, the wicked, and now the work of God has become wearisome to him. Stage one was that Asaph let the foolishness of the wicked contaminate his own thoughts until his heart was foolish. Stage two led him to considering that it may be hopeless or futile to serve God. This was the futile heart, and it has stolen his passion and zeal for ministering. We are now in stage three, which is the afflicted heart. What was once bright and passionate ministry is now only a wearisome task. Asaph has an afflicted heart by the things he allowed into it, and he is suffering because he has broken the Davidic Charter. You know, the Lord has given us a direction, a direction that we've been advancing in and pulling all of our efforts into, and that is the body building itself up in love. Can I say that there are hearts in this room in which it has become a wearisome task? An afflicted heart that also views a rebuke as rejection. A statement of no matter what I do, no matter what I say, when I wake up, when all day long, everything that comes out of my mouth is not right. It then is a, a declaration of being embittered in your own soul. You know, an embittered soul cannot taste the goodness of God when it's being given in the present. I'll let you know about me. Initially, I begin to feel this weariness come upon me, and I do the one thing that I think I can do best. Just add more force to it. Add more of my strength. What I was missing the entire time was the afflicted state of my own heart. And that showed up in the fact that I could not detect that my own heart was absent of bright, joyful, and passionate ministry. My wife would read my Abigails to me like two days ago. And she's calling out being joyfully inspirational. And my, my heart is just completely deceived to see that currently it's not there, but it's what God will bring about. Well, something happened to me. I'm walking past a mirror in my house, and I'm, I'm consciously thinking... I am going to be joyful, joyful about the next meeting, joyful about the next task. And I'm, I think I am forcing a smile on my face. And when I pass by that mirror, I see something completely different. What I thought was a smile, like forcible smile, was a scowl. And just, I mean, just being honest, I walked past and went, damn, what? Who is that? That's not the man that I know to be joyful, inspirational. Well, it made me think of something. It's Proverbs 27, 19. As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. Oh, there was a state of my heart where I become embittered at the task because I was, was allowing self-induced infliction of my own heart by just taking my eyes off of the steadfast love and justice of my God. Come on, I, I have to tell you this week, I had an afflicted heart as well. I, I've, I've been through each of these stages this week. Where my task, what, where my heart was futile, the task, I became flat, not particularly moved in any direction. There was no joy. So there was a flatness that was there, a mutedness that was there. When I got to the afflicted heart, everything then became so burdensome, I felt wearied by every single thing that I had to do. What's worse is that I didn't even realize that I was looking to mitigate my own weariness with other things other than the Lord's presence. I do that 
You know what I needed? I, I'm just tired. I, I only slept a few hours last night. It must be that I need physical rest, except that no amount of physical rest actually fixed it. I know what it is. Okay, it's not that. Maybe I need to uh, pay attention to what I mean. Maybe, you know, actually, forget all that. What I'd really like to do is just sit down. I have a meeting that's coming up with a brother, and what I should do is get in the Word and let the Lord replenish my soul. But you know what I will do instead? I will get on my phone, I'll flip to YouTube, and I'll watch news short videos so that that, that's clearly got to be the answer to what's wearying me, is I need news. Yeah, and it's never good news. Church, I had an afflicted heart and had no idea that that's really what I was longing for. I need something to help me feel like this is not quite as wearisome as what it is. It, I, it just feels like it's a heavy burden. This is a sign of my own heart seeking in an idolatrous way. When I say that I decided to get on my phone, I want you to understand, there was a drawing for me to go to my phone. I don't mean that there was some satanic, demonic thing. I'm saying my own heart wanted, I was looking for my phone so I could go to it like a baby would go to nurse to find comfort. I was trying to find my phone to comfort my own afflicted heart. Oh Lord, when will you come to me? Is what David says in Psalm 101. We know, we would all say and proclaim with all that we have, he is all that I want. There's only one thing that I need. He's it, except in my life, that was not true in these last few days. And what is devastating to me is that I had no idea. I was not looking at lascivious things. I was not looking at wicked things, except I was looking at worthless things, and I put them right before my eyes because I thought, I didn't just think, I wanted it to be my solution. <laughs> didn't cry out to my God. I didn't long for his presence to come in and fix me. Just tried to fix it on my own because I was numb to what was actually happening. As much as I'd like to make the turn right now and share how God did bring about a solution, see, Asaph has another level here that we're going to get to. We could all quote Galatians 6, 9 and say, let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap a harvest if we don't faint. Except today we want to talk to you about why you're getting weary. Oh, I got I to gotta persevere. Yes, but why are you getting weary? Might be because you have an afflicted heart and haven't been addressing the heart issue. The heart of the matter, which is your heart. See, we like saying, don't become weary in well-doing, but that is in context of you're either sowing to the flesh or you're sowing to the spirit. That's the verse right before that. And what you end up doing is sowing to the own fleshness, fleshliness of your heart and it produces the weariness that's there. We're going to fix the very heart issue, and Asaph is helping us to do that. Let's take a look at verse 22. Thank you, Pastor. Verse 22. I was brutish and ignorant. Me, I, yes. Brutish and ignorant. Right here. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me in glory. Whom, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The fourth stage of Asa's sinking heart is the failed heart. 
Asaph let foolishness into his heart in stage one. He then began to think it was futile to serve God in stage two. As he descended into stage three, his heart was afflicted, and it was wearisome to even try to serve God. Now he has reached the inevitable end of meditating on what the wicked do. His own heart has completely failed him and God. Is this particular stage resonating with anybody? This is the man Asaph at his lowest point. And he has just had a heart attack and died like Nabal. The beautiful turn is that when he was a brute beast and thinking like an animal, when he had let go of Adonai's hand, Adonai did not let go of his hand. Much like this, grab my arm. I am Asaph, wait is the Lord. I begin to progress in that descent of heart. And I get to the point of having a failed heart. But the entire time, my God has not let go of my right hand. The most resurrecting passage we were impacted by these past few days is verses 23 through 25. Never the less. Come on, church. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, O oh God. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Can you feel the absolute supernatural power in the word nevertheless? You've been a brute beast. You've had a, a, a folly heart. You've had a futile heart. You've had an afflicted heart. Your heart has even failed. Nevertheless, God is still holding on to you. He has not let go of you. There is something that is supernatural in that today. It's not about your performance. He's saying, fix your heart because I still have you by the hand. My God, he will guide us. My God did this for me, not because I was seeking him rightly, but because he had a hold of my hand on Thursday afternoon. I was up here studying with Pastor Matt, and I said, Pastor, I know we have things to do. I just need to go pray. And I paced back and forth, and the first moment that I turned my heart to him, do you know what happened? He proved to me, nevertheless, my son, he was with me. I could feel him washing over me. And it was in that moment that I realized that I was numb, that I had lost something, but I didn't know it until he came in and showed me and gave me a nevertheless kind of moment. That's what God can do for you today. Nevertheless. Somebody say nevertheless. This is a hope that we have. The hope that we have is to keep careful watch over your own heart. To trust that our faithful God will and is holding you tightly. He's guiding you. He's already promised that he won't leave you and forsake you. He's got you. This gives you the ability to rise. All those lesser versions of what Asaph was. He was descending and descending and descending. And by the way, do you realize how amazing that is? Because he shares every bit of that with us. Why? Because he had his nevertheless moment. LCM, you've been given the Davidic Charter, and the Messianic Kingdom is here upon you now. You're going to be able to do this by what it says in verse 26. Look at it. It says, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, this fifth stage is Asaph as he's rising. It's no longer the lesser version of Asaph. It is the greater and the greatest version that there is. It's that his heart was strengthened by God himself. The deceitful, sick state of his heart was cured in a moment. See, there was, steve, there was still evil all around him. The circumstances didn't change. His heart got strengthened by God. 
everything else around him just faded into the darkness and out of the light of God's glory and grace that he had his eyes now focused on. Church, you can be the greater Asaph today. You can have this kind of strength that is flowing into your heart today. Who needs a nevertheless moment right now? Let's conclude by finishing on Psalm 73, verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Church, we want to give you a direction this morning. And that is to keep the Davidic charter of Psalm 101. And refuse to meditate or set your eyes on what the evil do or even why they do it. When you begin to feel your heart slipping, going into that descent, awake from that nightmare by praising the steadfast love and justice of our God. He is holding your right hand. And he will not let you go. He is holding your right hand and you will then in turn pull others along with your left hand. You can be the greater version of Asaph. And even when you stumble, you will take the experience of that and proclaim it so that others may benefit from your transformation. Begin to stand to your feet. Church, this altar is here for you today. This altar is here for you to help you if you've had a foolish heart. Let me just go ahead and say that we have. A foolish heart that's been seduced away by the folly of others. You've had a futile heart within you that has become passionless and lost its own luster as you are pursuing God. Because in your heart you said, this is all in vain. Why am I really going about this process? You've had an afflicted heart that just said, this whole thing is so burdensome. It's so wearisome. You've had a failed heart. But today, God is going to come in and strengthen your heart. Nevertheless, he is here with you to help you. Let's pray. Father, we fix our, our eyes and our hearts on you and you alone. Though we approach you at this altar, fixing on your steadfast love and your justice. You are gracious. You are merciful. And you are the God who purifies our heart. Lord, we ask to purify all of our hearts. Lord, we may stand in that nevertheless moment. Lord, we may grasp the goodness of who you are and then begin to proclaim that same pure heart ability for others. In Jesus' name.